What were we made for? I kind of alluded to it with the children, but what, what is our purpose? Why do we exist? These are questions that people have wrestled with since the beginning of time. The author of the book of Ecclesiastes in the Bible speaks about trying to find the meaning and purpose to life. It is said Ecclesiastes is the book of perspective and the, the narrative written most likely by Solomon, namely the preacher or the teacher, depending on uh, your translation of Bible, reveals the depression that inevitably results from seeking happiness in merely worldly things. This book of Ecclesiastes gives its readers an opportunity to see the world through the eyes of a person who, though very wise, Solomon very wise, is trying to find meaning in, in temporary and worldly things. Most every form of worldly pleasure is explored by the preacher, and none of it gives him a sense of meaning until the end of the book. And you'll just have to read the book, end of the book of Ecclesiastes uh, to, later on today. Today we're going to be looking at another psalm. We've been going through the psalms for the last few weeks, and uh, we're going to continue this week in Psalm 100. It is in this psalm that we are told in part why we exist. It is in this psalm that we are shown that we are created to worship. And so as we continue in this series looking at various psalms, we begin again looking at Psalm 100. And I would encourage you to open up your Bibles or one of the church Bibles to Psalm 100. It is found on page 611 in the church Bibles. Once again, we'll be looking at Psalm 100 this morning, and I would ask you, please follow along as I read. This is God's holy, infallible, and life-giving and life-transforming word. Psalm 100, a, a psalm for thanksgiving. Shout joyfully to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful singing. Know that the Lord himself is God. It is he who has made us, and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His loving kindness is everlasting, and his faithfulness to all generations. May the Lord bless the reading, hearing, understanding, and obeying of his holy word. Would you please pray with me? Well, Father God, we come before you this morning. We are so thankful that you have set aside this day, this Lord's day, for us to gather as your people to worship you. We pray, Lord, as we gather, as we sit under your word, that you would allow me to preach your word faithfully. Lord, that we would be eager to hear this message from you. Lord, help us to understand. Help us to go home today being obedient, looking more and more like Christ. For it's in Jesus' precious name that we pray. Amen. Well, as we begin to look at this psalm together, we'll be looking at a series of questions found in your sermon outline, if you picked one up. And the first set of questions is, what are we all shouting about? 
What is the world shouting about? What are we supposed to be shouting about? If we look at the world around us, people are, are shouting all the time for many and various reasons, but perhaps more often than not, people are shouting in anger. People are shouting in anger because they feel like they have been wronged. People have been shouting in anger over the election results, I think still, over immigration issues, over abortion, over high gas prices, although they're coming down a little bit, over inflation, over all kinds of things. People are shouting. People are shouting out their opinions and shouting out their rights because they feel like their rights have been violated. And although there is all kinds of angry and often sinful shouting done in our world today, God does actually tell us that there is shouting that he approves, that he desires, and in fact commands people to do. The very first words of our psalm today, we are commanded to shout to the Lord. We are not to shout in anger at the Lord, which is also what many people do when things are not going the way that they believe they deserve. This shouting that we are commanded to do comes from this Hebrew root word, ruah. Ruah. It even sounds like what it means. It's, it's jubilant shouting. Ruah. Perhaps it's most like the shouting that people make when their team wins a championship. Just this past spring, my family and I were shouting triumphantly because the Kansas Jayhawks won the NCAA National Men's Basketball Championship. We lived out in Kansas for five years, so that's why we're Kansas Jayhawks fans. I remember shouting in triumph when the Philadelphia Eagles won the Super Bowl back in February of 2018. I remember shouting in triumph when the Philadelphia Phillies won the World Series back in 2008, folks. I remember way back in 1983 when I shouted in triumph about the Philadelphia 76ers winning the NBA championship. I can barely remember 1974 and 75, Lou, sorry, when I, was, when I was able to shout in triumph about those Philadelphia Flyers winning the Stanley Cup back-to-back -back years. Now, th those were certainly fun, yet they were merely temporary triumphs in the world of Philadelphia major sports teams. No knock on the Philadelphia Union, of course. They're doing very well, and we hope that they might win the MLS Cup. But beyond merely jubilant shouting, this word ruah also means shouting triumphantly over our enemies that God has defeated for us. The opponent that God has defeated for us is not merely a sports rival like the Dallas Cowboys or those Steelers or the New York Mets, or, or the New Jersey Devils. I mean, that's an easy one to hate, right? The Devils. Who would want the Devils to win? The opponent that God has defeated for us once and for all is his defeat of our enemies of sin and Satan and death. This is why Jesus came. The promise 
was made in the Garden of Eden, right after the fall of Adam and Eve into sin. The promise was that Jesus would one day come and crush the head of Satan. And that day came when Jesus, God the Son, after living a perfect and sinless life, he went to the cross and died for our sin. And after three days, he rose triumphantly, conquering sin, death, and Satan for us. And if we could have heard the sound of heaven that day, they would have been shouting, Ruah! In some heavenly language, of course, not in Hebrew. But shouting triumphantly in praise to God for his defeat over our enemies. This is the joyful, triumphant, jubilant shouting that we as Christians should be making ourselves. This is what we are commanded and created to do in Psalm 100, verse 1, which tells us to shout for joy to the Lord all the earth. This shouting is an expression of worship, praise, and adoration of who God is and what he has done for us. This shouting joyfully to the Lord is not an irreverent screaming like you might hear at a, a sports event, maybe. It is a profound act of worship. In 2 Samuel, we, we see that King David uh, defeated the Philistines by the strength and power of the Lord, and, and then he gathers thousands of the Israelites to worship the Lord and while bringing up the ark of God, which represented the presence of the Lord. And, and what happens next is that God does not accept worship that is irreverent, we see. One of King David's men named Uzzah was there guiding the ox-driven cart that carried the ark of the Lord. And it says in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 6, that Uzzah, he, he reached out his hand toward the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen had nearly upset it. And in verse 7, it says, And the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah, and God struck him down there for his irreverence. And he died there by the ark of God. It's not entirely clear what exactly Uzzah did or did not do, but it is clear that God was justly angry at Uzzah for his attitude and or his actions, and therefore he deserved to die. This passage reminds us that it, it matters how we worship the Lord. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28 and 29 says, Worship God acceptably and with awe, for our God is a consuming fire. The Apostle Paul states in Romans 12, chapter, uh, chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, for this is your spiritual or reasonable act of worship. It is in response to God's mercy that we should be shouting joyfully in worship to the Lord. But we are not merely to be shouting joyfully in worship to the Lord. We will see in this psalm that, that serving is also an act of worship that God commands and deserves. But it begs the question, who are we serving? Who are we really serving? Modern-day singer-songwriter by the name of Bob Dylan wrote a popular song many years ago called Gonna 
have to serve somebody. And some of his lyrics go as, as follows. I could try and do a Dylan. Yeah, yeah, you may be a construction worker working on a home. No, I'm not going to do it anymore. You may be living in a mansion, or you might live in a dome. You might own guns, or you might even own tanks. You might be somebody's landlord. You might even own banks. But you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it might be the devil or it might be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Dylan wrote this song with a, a message that it doesn't matter who you are. Every single person, young, old, wherever you live, whatever your occupation, everyone's going to have to serve somebody. And we are truly serving someone or something with everything that we do in life. And because we are sinners, we, we tend to selfishly serve ourselves. The world that we live in is certainly pushing this agenda of selfishly serving ourselves. It's in virtually every commercial and everything out there, pushing that we should be selfish. But God's plan and his command is that we would be selflessly serving the Lord. This word, serve, in our passage means to submit to the Lord in following and obeying him. To submit to the Lord in following and obeying him. We, we see an example of this desire to serve the Lord back in the book of Joshua. Joshua chapter 24, we see that he was leading the Israelites and renewing their covenant with the Lord. And Joshua says in verse 14, he's talking to the people, and he says to them, he says, Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods of your forefathers, worship beyond the river in Egypt, and serve the Lord. Then he says, but if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your forefathers served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are now living. But as for me and my house, Joshua says, we will serve the Lord. And the people answered. They said, far be it from us to forsake the Lord and to serve other gods. And like Joshua and the Israelites, we too should be affirming this covenant to serve the Lord. We need to be throwing away those false gods and idols that we are tempted to serve. Author and pastor Tim Keller wrote in his book, Counterfeit Gods, he wrote, an idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, and anything that you seek to give you that only God can give you. An idol is something that we have placed above God. Anything that is more important to us than God is, is an idol to us. And as the days, in the days of Joshua and the Israelites, idolatry is alive and well in our world today. All human beings are prone to have idols in our lives that we worship and serve. Some, some modern-day idols that, that people worship uh, and serve today are, first of all, the idol of identity. Many people have largely abandoned who they are in Christ and place their identity in other things instead. And that's, that's idolatry. Other idols are, are money, material things, jobs, 
social status, physical appearance, entertainment, sports, comfort, technology, leisure, and many, many more. God wants us to put away these idols that serve him alone. Our attitude for serving the Lord should also be one of, of delight and joy and gladness and, and pleasure. This means that we should be a willing servant. And as I thought about that, I thought about what it said in Deuteronomy chapter 15, what a willing servant is. It says, if a fellow Hebrew or a man or a woman sells himself to you and serves you for six years, in the seventh year, you must let him go free. But if your servant says to you, I, I do not want to leave you because he loves you and is well off with you, then take an awl, that metal awl, and push it through his earlobe into the door, and he will become your servant for life. This is the act of a willing servant who loves his master. This is who we are called to be as Christians. We were once enslaved to sin, but Jesus, he bought us with the price of his life as he bled and died on the cross at Calvary for our sins. He bought our freedom so that we might become his willing servants. We then become his willing servants for life, serving the Lord with gladness. God has called all his children to serve him with gladness. And he gives us all that we need to serve him with all our time and talents and our treasure. And he gives to each one of us these time, talents, and treasure to use for his glory. And all that we have belongs to God anyway. The, the Apostle Paul, uh, Peter, James, and Jude all begin several of their letters in the Bible identifying themselves by name and that they are servants of their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Is this how you identify yourself? This is the identity of those who put their faith and trust in Jesus alone. We are no longer enslaved to sin, but we are called to be lifetime servants of Jesus. As we continue to look back at Psalm 100 together, we, we see yet another aspect of worship that is vital and is commanded by God. We are told to come before him with singing. Uh, perhaps we should always ask, ask ourselves, why are we singing? Why are we singing? You know, singing and, and music today is a multi-billion dollar industry spreading across the globe uh, with people singing in hundreds of different languages in all different kinds of styles. And God is the one who created each one of us to sing. But why are we singing? For many people, the reasons that they sing is it's all about them. It's in essence to, to promote their own agenda. Oftentimes our singing is, is selfishly about us. It's it's what kind of music and style that we like or what we are familiar with or, or how many instruments or what kind of instruments or how loud or how soft the music is or, or the singing should be. But the singing that God commands us to do is not about us. The reason that we are commanded to come before the Lord with singing is to glorify him. It is not supposed to be about us. 
We are commanded to glorify God in our singing. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, it says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, as you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. We are commanded to sing with gratitude in our hearts to God, not grumbling because we're not singing our favorite hymn or song. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 19 says, it says that we are to sing and make music in our hearts to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why are we to sing? We are to sing because God commands it. It is an act of worship in response to all that God has done for us. Our singing and our worship come from our hearts and out of our lips in song to the Lord. You know, some people are very self-conscious about their singing. And they're sitting in the sanctuary and they kind of go, Praise God from whom all blessings flow. I hope nobody hears me. I sound horrible. Is that how we're supposed to sing? Some people are very self-conscious and they don't like the sound of their voice. But when they sing, if you're worshiping God from our heart, then he loves the sound of your singing. He loves the sound of your singing. When I was in college, I, I had a friend in college. Uh, we were in InterVarsity Christian Fellowship uh, together, and we used to go to these gatherings where we'd, where we'd sing and get a lesson and whatnot. And, and uh, I would often be sitting next to her. Her name was Nadine. And, and when we gathered together for singing and worship, and all of a sudden she went and sang, Praise God! It was so off-key. It was, it was, I was like, what? First time, sitting next to her, I was like, what is going on? But you know what? It didn't matter to her because she was worshiping to an audience of one, God. She didn't care. And I loved sitting next to Nadine from that time on because I saw in her heart that she was worshiping the Lord. Even if she wasn't singing on key, it didn't matter. She knew that if she sang and worshiped from the depths of her heart that God would accept her worship. And then there are those who love to hear themselves sing. Hey, you're sounding really good today. Their singing may sound beautifully. It might be an in tune on the outside, but it might, it might not be accepted by God as worship because that person is merely singing for themselves. There's a picture of what singing and worship will be found like in the book of Revelation one day. In chapter 7, verse 9 through 11, it's a picture of, of worship in heaven. It says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one can count, from every nation and tribe and people and language, standing before the throne in front of the Lamb. And they were wearing white robes, and they were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, singing, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the, and the four living creatures. And they fell down on their faces before the throne and they worshiped God saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. 
We are created to worship God by shouting joyfully to the Lord, by serving the Lord with gladness, and by coming before him with joyful singing, and also by knowing things, by knowing things. Our psalm helps us to see what is actually worth knowing. Verse 3 of our psalm helps us to see what is worth knowing. The world is obviously obsessed with knowing all kinds of stuff, right? Some people have reported that there are over 31,000 different universities in the world with over 220 million students. That's up from 100 million students in the year 2000. The cost of educating students at, these, at the universities in just one academic school year in 2018 to 19 in the United States alone was $632 billion. That is a lot of money and time that is spent on knowledge and of obtaining degrees. And then there's, of course, the internet. Everybody's obsessed with the internet and knowledge about all kinds of things. How do I make a loaf of bread? <laughs> How do I, whatever. We're obsessed with knowledge. And as important and as some education and knowledge is in our world today, the most important knowledge that we can have is, is a knowledge that has eternal value. It is knowing who God is and knowing who God made us to be. Knowing who God is and, and knowing who God has made us to be has eternal value. The, the world is continually teaching us lies about who God is and who he is not. It is impossible to truly worship God without first truly knowing who God is. Our knowledge about who God is begins with his word, the Bible. The Lord himself declares in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 39, there is no God besides me. That's what God says. There is no God besides me. This contradicts the lie that is told that all religions worship the same God. The God of Islam is a false God. The God of Buddhism is a false God. The gods of Hinduism, Sikhism, and all other isms are not the same as the one true God of the Bible. King David wrote in Psalm 86, verse 10, you alone are God. He knew that there was only one true God and that all of these other gods, so-called gods, were false gods and merely idols. In Isaiah chapter 45, verse 5, God says, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. King David again prays in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 22, how great you are. We just sang how great is our God. How great you are, O sovereign Lord. There is no one like you, and there is no God but you. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, the Apostle Paul writes, We know that an idol is nothing at all in this world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, yet there is but one true God, the Father from whom all things came and from whom we live, and there is but one God, Jesus Christ, who is God the Son, through whom all things came and through whom all, we all live. It is God the Spirit who gives us faith to believe and lives within the life of every believer. This is the one true triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that we are called to know and worship. And the Apostle Paul 
also writes in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17, he writes, Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor, glory forever and ever. Amen. We can only worship God if we truly know the one true God. And this knowledge is much more than just head knowledge, right? You could memorize this Bible and not know who God is. It says in James chapter 2, verse 19, You believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. In order to truly know God is to believe and to trust in that one true God. It is knowing that he is the one who made us and not we ourselves, as it says in verse 3 of our psalm. King David reminds us in Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16, for you, God, created my inmost being. You are the one who knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works, O Lord, are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in that secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. We have a loving and personal God who has fearfully and wonderfully created each one of us and created us that we might know him. We are the ones that God has chosen to be his people. Peter tells us that we are God's chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that we may declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once we were not God's people, but now we are God's people. Once we have not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. Jesus tells us in the Gospel of John, chapter 15, he says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. The Apostle Paul says that God chose us in him before the creation of the world. God chose us. Jesus died for us. And it's the Holy Spirit that gave us faith to believe. God not only calls us his people, it says that he calls us the sheep of his pasture. He calls us the sheep of his pasture. King David would have clearly understood this analogy of being called the sheep of his pasture because David himself was a shepherd boy before he became king. David would have known that, that sheep desperately need their shepherd. David cared for, loved, and protected those sheep under his care in the pasture. And that is what Jesus does for us. Jesus himself calls us the chief shepherd. In John chapter 10, Jesus says, My sheep, they, they listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Brothers and sisters, if you have faith in Christ, then you are God's sheep. He knows you. He loves you. He protects you. He gives you eternal life. Nothing can take you away from God. Because we are God's sheep, we get to know him and we get to listen to his voice. We can know, as the 23rd Psalm tells us, that he is our shepherd, that he provides for all that we need, that he guides us through difficult and trying times, that he disciplines us, that he comforts us, 
and he allows us to be in his presence forever and ever. The psalmist continues in verse 4 of our passage in Psalm 100 this morning that we are to enter his gates with thanksgiving. This is yet another aspect of worship that God expects and commands and deserves. In our worship, we are to be showing gratitude. In all of life, in all of life, we are to be showing gratitude to God. This world that we live in is full of ingratitude because they believe that they deserve everything. But in reality, God alone deserves our gratitude. So how are we to be showing gratitude to God? It tells us in our passage how we're to be showing gratitude to God. We're to be showing gratitude with our words and with our actions. In our worship, we are entering his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. We're we're being given this imagery of, of coming into the temple to worship the Lord. The final sacrifice has been made by Jesus in his death on the cross. And when Jesus died on the cross, that veil in the temple was torn in in two from top to bottom. This veil had, had visually kept people out from accessing the presence of the Lord. But now we have access because of what Jesus has done for us. We can now approach this throne of grace with confidence. We have access to come into his presence, giving thanks to God for who he is and what he has done. We are, we are called to worship God and to express thanks for his goodness. For the Lord alone is truly good. Jesus says in the Gospel of Luke, no one is good but God alone. Nahum the prophet says in, in chapter 1, verse 7, the Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. David declares in Psalm 34, verse 8, taste and see that the Lord is good. But what does it mean that God is good? We will often ask people how they're doing. Hey, how you doing? And we would get back in this greeting without even thinking, I'm good, I'm good, I'm doing good. But this is not what it means when we're speaking of the character and attribute of God, the God of being good. He alone is truly good. It is said to, to say that God is good means that God always acts in accordance to what is right and true. Goodness is part of God's nature, and he does not contradict his nature. It speaks of his holiness and his righteousness, which are part of God's nature. He cannot do anything that is unholy or unrighteousness, and God is the, the standard of all that is good. The fact that God is good means that he has no evil in him. His intentions, his motivations are always good. He always does what is right, and the outcome of his plan is always good. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. As we are created to worship We are called to be showing gratitude for God's goodness, for his loving kindness, and for his faithfulness. And we're to be doing this in our words and in our actions. This psalm shows us that we are created to worship the one true God. So let us shout joyfully to the Lord, for he... Ruah is right! 
You beat me to it. Remember that. Ruah. We're to shout joyfully to the Lord, for he is good. He is the one that has given us victory. He has won for us this victory. Jesus Christ has won for this, us our victory in life, death, and resurrection. Let us respond to him in worship by looking for ways to serve the Lord with gladness. There are so many ways that we can serve. We're so thankful people are serving this coming week with Camp Treasure Island. If you were able to, you're serving if you're praying for this. You know that, right? You're serving if you're helping to contribute in any way. You're serving if you're here this week. We're not. We love that you're serving. We can serve in all ways. And as we worship the Lord, may we be singing to the glory of the one true God and not singing to ourselves and about ourselves. As we worship the Lord, may we be desiring to know him more and more as we read and study his word. And as we worship the Lord, may we be continually showing gratitude for who God is and what he has done for us. Let us do all of these things to the glory of God by our words and with our actions. And as we reflect upon this psalm throughout this week, may we look for ways to, to worship and serve our risen Lord. Let us pray. Father God in heaven, we thank you that you have not left us alone. Lord, that you have created us to worship you. Lord, help us to do that in our words and in our actions, in our gratitude. Help us to be reminded of who you are and what you have done for us. We give you thanks and we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.